Well, hello again, everyone. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And welcome to another edition of Two Ways News, where we try to bring gospel thinking to our life today and to every aspect of our life today, to our ministries, to the way we disciple and encourage each other, to our church life, to our personal lives, and also to our social and cultural life as, as citizens of our nation. And in today's episode, we want to bring some biblical thinking to our Christian responsibility as citizens. Uh, here in Australia, those of you who are listening overseas, you may have heard this, we're coming up to a, a vote, a referendum vote in our nation with respect to a change in our constitution, and it's causing a lot of debate and a lot of cultural noise. And it's difficult for Christians to sometimes navigate their way through this, to think, is there a Christian response to this particular social, political question that we're grappling with? And today we want to talk about that, about how Christians think through morality, how they engage with and interact with our society morally about big questions and how we make decisions as Christian citizens. But Tony, we're not going to tell people how to vote, are we? In fact, I hope we'll be successful in hiding how we're voting, that at the end of this episode, people still don't know whether we're voting yes or no. You better tell people, what's the issue that's coming up? Well, the issue goes back a long way. It goes back to Australia's relationship with its first inhabitants, with the Indigenous inhabitants who were here when the first fleet arrived, when the British Empire colonised Australia. And ever since that time, in 1788, there's been a conflicted relationship between uh, the English colonisers and the Indigenous population, as there has been in many, many countries around the world. And in Australia, we're coming up to one of those moments where we're grappling together with how to recognise, how to deal with the consequences of that history in our public life, and in particular in our constitution. And the current government is proposing a referendum, which is a national vote on this question. That's the only way the constitution can be changed, through a national vote, to insert a clause into our constitution that does a couple of things, that recognises the First Nations people, as it says, as the first inhabitants and traditional kind of owners of this country, of Australia, and that establishes what's called a voice. And this voice, which will be a body, uh, a committee of people comprising of different kinds of people for different Aboriginal people and Indigenous people from around Australia, will provide advice to the federal parliament and to the executive government, that, that is, to the different levels and functions of our national government. So it's it's a proposal to insert something new into our constitution to at one level recognise something of our history, but significantly also to establish a new political mechanism for Indigenous people to speak to the parliament and to have a particular political part to play in the way our government and our parliament works. How, how does that go as a summary, Philip? It's a good summary of it because it's, a, it's just a matter of fact so far. It is fair to say, isn't it, that... Our First Nations people here, however we're going to describe our Indigenous people, the Aborigines of Australia, our First Nations people here are suffering economic and social disadvantages far greater than the community at large is one issue and we are concerned, I think pretty well everybody is concerned about the disadvantage that our First Nations peoples are feeling and suffering and we are spending government monies and have spent government monies to try and alleviate the disadvantages of life that the Indigenous people experience. 
and that one of the motivations behind this constitutional change is the hope that through the voice we'll be able to close the gap between white Australians and Indigenous Australians in terms of their life expectancy, their health, their violence, their difficulties, their economic deprivations and so forth. And so why are we talking about this on this podcast? At one level, this is something for every Australian citizen to think through and to work out what would be the best path forward. Is this a good constitutional change or not? But interestingly, and this is very important for Christians, this has not been just a kind of mechanistic or pragmatic debate about possible consequences or outcomes. It's been a charged moral debate in which both sides of the of the question, there's a yes side and a no side, both sides have invoked deep moral values and issues and brought those to their sides. And interestingly, both sides have started to engage with churches and communities of faith to try and draw them in and get them on side. And so we find ourselves not just discussing a pragmatic question of what might be best, but fairly deep moral and ethical questions that, as Christians, of course, we're interested in. And we find ourselves drawn towards some of those ethical and moral arguments, but also puzzled and confounded by others. And so it's it's becoming it's become a question of social and cultural ethics in our nation, not just of pragmatics. And as such, it's it's undermined debate. That is, because it's all put in moral terms, both sides, because they put it in moral terms, for you to talk about it with your neighbours or to talk about it over the dinner table draws you into being either moral or immoral, depending which side you're talking on and which side the person on the other side of the table is on. As soon as a a moral term like racist, powerful, emotional moral term like racist is used on uh, on the constitutional change, you're no longer discussing what would be wise or sensible or helpful. You're discussing what's right or wrong. And that really leaves you no place for discussion. And so I've noticed a lot of people, they don't want to talk about it because it is likely to cause uh, real deep division in the conversation with the other person. Because my stance on it, one way or another, may label me as immoral, one yes. way or another, because it's being a, it's a charged moral debate and yes. not simply a, a pragmatic one. If you and I agree, well, then that's all right. But if you and I disagree then we wind up calling each other immoral. Now, this kind of takes us to how you make an argument for a change like this and the different ways that people make ethical arguments. Uh, There's, for Christians, there's the Bible. There's also these moral values that are around more generally in the community. And there's also, we also think about the consequences of our actions. How do people argue morally today? And in making these moral arguments, where do they fit in these kind of categories? Yeah, that's the right way of putting it. And I think you you pinpointed the three kinds of levels of debate. There is for Christians, well, what does God say? What does God say in the broadest terms and senses? I mean, he's not going to talk about Indigenous Australians, but he will talk about reconciliation or mercy or forgiveness or care or love, all of which we might be applying to a situation. But then there's a second one that the Christian and the non-Christian alike, the just humans will pick on, that is what I would call a kind of intuitive morality. It's, a, it's, the sense, it's the sense of 
that's not fair, or that's right, that's just, that is fair. But being, I call it intuitive because it's not really open to rational discussion. It, it comes just from our intuition, just our sense, our feeling that this is fair or unfair. The, the one rational way of discussing it is that third level is outcomes, um, where we can actually say, well, if we do this, these will be the consequences. You do that, those will be the consequences. But, of course, the trouble with that is you don't know until after the event what the outcomes are going to be. So, And what period of, how long a period of time are you going to judge before the outcomes actually have their effect or not? Because sometimes you can make a decision like we did in the 1970s about divorce and new marriage laws, which the consequence of them has not really been seen to 30 years later, um, by which time it's a little too late to, to go back to where we were. Uh, same with pornography laws. You know, they changed. Now I think most people would regret some of the change, but it's too late now. The pornography's everywhere. And it's complicated because the, the interaction between your belief in a principle, which might drive your view on a particular question, and what actually happens as a result um, cannot always be in line. You, you could support a particular policy or public form of action or government act or, or go against it on the basis that it sort of contravenes my principles. I mean, in principle... Um, a moral principle, I, I just don't approve of this, this doesn't sound right, and yet it could be that down the track it actually was right or it, or that it was uh, effective. Yes. I mean, my classic one was that was my opposition and the opposition of Christians in general here in New South Wales to changing the hours in which um, pubs are available, open and selling alcohol. Um, the pubs used to close at 6pm and there was great pressure to keep them open until 10pm today. Of course, they're open 24 hours. But in those days, it was whether you'd have 10pm closing. The Christians really objected because we saw alcohol in the Australian culture and the ways in which Australians treat alcohol as one of the great social problems of our time. It still is. It's a major contributing factor to driving accidents, to drowning accidents, to domestic violence, to on and on it goes. However, while we want to say, no, let's control and curtail alcohols, the six o'clock closing actually was a disaster. Ten o'clock was much more civilised. For the six o'clock closing meant men who knocked off work at five o'clock dashed to the pubs and drank as much as they could on empty stomachs and so got very, very drunk and then went home for dinner drunk. Whereas once we had to ten o'clock closing, well, men would go home and have dinner and then go out and drink. Consequently, we actually reduced public drunkenness and private drunkenness by changing from six o'clock to ten o'clock. So although... On principle, the church has argued for six o'clock closing. In fact, it was better to have ten o'clock closing. So your, your policies, your principles and the practical outworking are two slightly disconnected things. You can't just draw the straight line from one to the other. And that's one of the problems in this current debate is that 
because we don't know the future and we you can't always tell and we can't ever tell really what is going to be truly effective in the long term, we want to argue our case, though, by attaching our moral position to a set of outcomes or one kind or another. And so in the case of the constitutional debate, the yes side says, if you support Aborigines and their life and you want to see closing the gap, vote yes, because voting yes will close the gap. So there's a connection between your desire to do good and to see reconciliation and an improvement in conditions with this proposal. Whereas the no case, in much the same way, will evoke the principle of it's bad to divide a nation on racial grounds. Yes, that's true and connects that to the fact that this uh, particular proposal will not only produce that division and the bad effects that come from that, but also it won't in- improve the lot of Aborigines in any kind of tangible way. That's doubtful. So for, for both sides, there's this desire to connect my moral argument to some pragmatic outcomes, but it's very hard to do that. Yes, and you can argue the pragmatic outcomes, though you can't prove the case one way or another, but at least it's rational in the debate. However, the rational debate is not what motivates people to change opinion. It doesn't motivate people to go into the ballot box and tick yes or no. What motivates people is the moral issue, the big, the sense that I'm doing the right thing or I'm not doing the wrong thing to double negative. Uh, That's the thing that actually shifts people in this kind of debate. But, of course, once you move into that moral, it's it's what's right, it's what's proper, well, it's no longer a rational debate. Yes, because the kind of intuitive sense of morality that people have and which keeps being invoked in this current debate, it seems in our culture unanchored. It just seems assertive. Um, this is just the case. There's there's no way to agree on it or disagree on it. It's it's a vibe, uh, to use the words of the castle. It's just a sense we all have that something is correct. Yes. And, and this is one of the problems with that intuitive level of morality. It's part of the human creation. See, God has created us and has charged us with our responsibilities for the world And so it's what some people would call natural justice. It's true. It's real. There is a right. There is a wrong. And we as creatures, unlike the cows and the sheep and the lions or the elephants or the the flowers, we actually have that sense given to us by God of there being a right and wrong. It's creational in the sense that we are created as creatures with that faculty and agency in the world to perceive morality, to perceive good, perceive evil. But it's also creational in the sense that the world is that kind of place, that it's a a morally ordered place in which things are ordered in a certain way to fit together, to work together, to have certain purposes such that violating those purposes or those, those nature or characteristics of things is an evil or is wrong. And so... There's, in other words, there's something about the created good of marriage and what marriage is and who men and women are and how they're created that makes marriage a good and makes adultery an evil. Um, it's sort of woven into the nature of the way things are. So the creational sort of basis of that intuition people have is there. But yes, of, but because of sin, exactly, uh, our perception of it is now distorted because instead of living under 
the knowledge of good and evil that God gives us, we have eaten of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil ourselves, so that we are trying to determine by ourselves and for ourselves the content of that intuitive morality. And sadly, because the basis of that is sin, we inevitably get it wrong. We get it wrong because we're limited. We, we can't see the whole and we're not God. We can't stand up and look, at, look over the whole order of everything and understand it. We, we're trying to understand it from within and that's inherently limited as it is. But it's also limited, as you say, because we're not only finite, we're also flawed uh, and the world itself is flawed. Um, the created order is, is good and wonderful, but it's fallen, it's cursed and nothing quite works as it should. And so the result is, while there may be a moral order and a natural order to the world, and God has given us the capacity and the responsibility, as you say, to live in that order, to say that it's there is one thing, to say that we're able to accurately perceive it, understand it, and express it's another. And that, and that of course, is one of the big divides in Christian ethics as well. Yes, that's right. So for, for some of us, our intuition of what is right and wrong is really our cultural upbringing. And so one society will see something as right, which another society will see as profoundly wrong. It's also under the persuasion of the society around about us, our, our education, the, the media, etc. And so you can have swings from one opinion to another in a very short period of time. I mean, around the end of the uh, 20th century, it was perfectly clear that same-sex marriage was wrong. By the 2020s, most of the Western world had accepted it as right. Um, well, either you're saying there is no right and wrong, or you're saying that the content of right and wrong is open to change. Uh, neither of those are satisfying for those of us who believe in the created order. So what has happened? Well, what has happened is... Sinful people are determining for themselves, this is right, that is wrong. And sinful people can change their minds. So our, our way of intuition um, is malleable. At that point, the content of it is malleable. The existence of it remains. So the, the voting for same-sex marriage was a highly moral vote. It wasn't a matter of any rationality or any outcomes discussion, it was a moral vote in the end. The great catchphrase here in Sydney anyway was love is love. And that's just an intuitive appeal to the ultimate good called love. It's interesting then that the way we persuade one another then to each other's side, the way we try and win these debates or get our cause up, the way that the yes vote or the no vote may persuade each other, then often chiefly comes with not a sense of let's dig deeply into the possible practical outcomes and investigate the detail. It's join on side. If, if you want to be part of something great and good and moral, join us because we're the good guys. Be on the right side of history. Yeah. And another way in which it's argued is stories, stories of profound hurt or upset. or I mean, the euthanasia debate, it's discussed in terms of I had my father in hospital and he suffered greatly and I wouldn't want anybody to go through such suffering. 
and then I can pour out the details of this suffering. Or another one that they say is, well, you know, if we don't change this, people will be suiciding. Young people are suiciding in great numbers. It's almost impossible to get the statistics of who actually is suiciding, let alone why they suicide. But that is the kind of emotive argument. Young Johnny Smith, he was, and therefore he suicided because the government, because the law, because these things were against whatever it was that he was involved in. It didn't matter. But if we have laws against drug abuse, then drug addicts like young John will suicide and we've got to stop that. It's appealing to our emotions, to our feelings, to our intuition of what's right and wrong. It's interesting that since it's the vibe of of a moral stance that ends up being what persuades people to your side rather than a, a rational discussion, it's interesting the part that different kinds of key people in our society then play in these kind of arguments, like celebrities, for example. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I generally don't, don't try and learn my ethical philosophy from f- football players. Or actresses. Uh, or actresses. So you can't mu- say actresses, actors. Actors. <laughs> or, or musicians. I mean, I love football and I love watching football, but... I don't really expect the front row forward to be the deep philosophical thinker, uh, especially after he's been in a lot of scrums. Mm. The, the brain power of a head that's endured that experience, mm. is he's not chosen for that reason. He's chosen for a whole set of reasons, but his brain power of philosophical analysis is not... Well, now, he may have it, because humans do, but just because he's a footballer, is not the reason to be listening to him. Furthermore, when they hold up the footballers as role models, they constantly have this problem of finding that they're bashing people in pubs late at night. Or but strangely, when you take 23-year-old young men and give them lots of money <laughs> and fame and plenty of yes. time on their hands, then I wonder what happens next. What kind of role models are they? But suddenly... That team of that, here he is in the front row of the picture, they're voting yes or they're voting no, and therefore I should be ignoring them. Hmm. That's what I should be. Yes, indeed. And if you want to talk about footballers, the same interestingly can be said for whole football codes and enterprises because it's not just individual footballers that are brought to the side of one particular side or the other. It's the AFL or the, the whole Australian football League as an organisation will take a stance on this, and so of course will Qantas, and so of course will Westpac, and so of course will universities, big, universities, big corporate entities of different kinds, want to declare themselves on one side of this or the other. And at the moment, certainly in Australia, it's mostly on one side. But why is that? Why? What? What's it got to do with Qantas or the AFL? There is an important discussion that's been happening for some years of the moral responsibility of an institution, especially like a corporation, a business corporation, to um, enhance the environment in which they're doing business, um, to, to make moral contribution to the welfare of the society. Uh, you would hope that a university would be 
would be providing something for the good of society rather than the ill of society. And likewise a business, and built into that, of course, is ecological issues, that their business is not going to damage the ecology of the world, but actually be caring for the way our world continues to operate. However, it's very hard to work out who has the right to speak for the institution on every issue that's going, and whether the whether the business that it is operating in uh, has morality as its key element. For after all, it has taken money from a lot of small shareholders to operate a business, fly aeroplanes or make Vegemite or whatever it might be. That is the purpose for which the thing has been set up and to provide profit for the shareholders. When do the shareholders get a say as to whether they want this political issue or that political issue to be funded by the company that they've set up? Now, you can say, well, the they should just change the, the board of directors. But changing the board of directors is a very difficult operation, to put it mildly, to say nothing of the difficulty of a little one or two shareholders doing it. You say, well, they should sell, sell their shares. But where do you put your shares? Where do you put your money? Can you, you know, the inclusiveness again excludes, as I'm not allowed to find a place to put my money. Ethical investments has always been a moral quagmire for how can you really work out what ethical issues are important or unimportant. Generally, it's got to do with what's legal. But the university, the university is supposed to be a place of open discussion and debate. But if the university council declares itself out on one side of an issue or another side, Sadly, they don't say, we as the council members think this. They say, the university thinks this. Well, that is closing down the, the very debate. That's, that's declaring a viewpoint. Truth is not found in institutional decisions. Truth is not found in the majority think. <laughs> Truth is found in the reasons and arguments. And the university's commitment is to find pursue the truth. So the idea that a university can declare itself on a particular moral issue, I think is, is a destruction of the very concept of what a university is, frankly. And for a business to do it, I think this has got riddled with problems. Not the least, what do you do if you work for that business and you hold the opposite point of view? What do you do if you're a customer of that business and you hold the opposite point of view? What do you do if you're a shareholder in that business and you hold an opposite point of view? The business is not set up for political purposes or moral purposes. So why should we expect them or even allow them to be promoting such an issue? Well, it seems to me that many businesses see in this an opportunity to burnish their brand to burnish their reputation it's it's uh, the vibe is heading in a particular direction they sense that this is the way things are going and that they'll gain some kind of social credit and reputation by being seen to be on the right side of the intuitive moral vibe 
And so they declare themselves there in an effort to say we're the good guys. And it's in, in many ways it can be almost like a marketing brand issue for many businesses, even more than the sense of I'm actually seeking to do corporate good by planting more trees or something. Yeah, what happens if they lose? Indeed. What happens if they wind up on the wrong side of history? Indeed. Well, of course, they'll still come out claiming the moral right. <laughs> Not to say whether I'm a monarchist or a republican. Back in the referendum we had, the last referendum, which was, I think, 1999, about whether Australia should get rid of the monarchy and accept a republicanism, the, the community was told that we are now a nation mature enough to run our own affairs. When the vote went against the Republicans, they then came out and said the trouble with the Australian electorate was that they weren't mature enough to vote the right way. (laughs) The high moral ground of public relations was held irrespective of the outcome of it, which also is just irrational stupidity. So, Philip, as Christians then participating in this, as citizens... We've been talking about the problems associated with that middle kind of way of moral thinking, the intuitive um, level, because while it can touch on things that are morally true and there is a morality in the world to sense and, and interact with, because it doesn't have its foundation, if I can put it that way, in an understanding of God who created this world and created us and reveals to us the nature of the good and how we should live, because it not only doesn't have but denies that foundation and that overarching truth, we often see this intuitive level of morality kind of floundering around, sometimes hitting on good things but struggling to make sense. And really that's what we've been discussing. How as Christians, though, should we interact with that? So we come to this, this question with God's word, with an understanding of that foundation, and with an understanding, too, that there are consequences, pragmatic, practical consequences to any action that ought to be thought through carefully and prudently. How should we respond as part of the debate? What should our voice be as we talk to our friends, as we think about how we ourselves should vote, but as we contribute to the public discussion? When you have a clear word from God, adultery, you shall not commit adultery, then legislation that comes in that encourages adultery has got to be something that we should speak against because we have a clear, explicit word from God. But a lot of the word of God is not explicit commandments like that. It's much more the values and attitudes to to life. Also the kind of person you should be in life, the the virtues and character you should have and so on. And added to that also is the wisdom of life that you find in the book of Proverbs and things like that. This is a wise way of doing it. And so, therefore, we then need to to deliberate and to think about the word of God as it applies to to an issue. Now, on the issue of Indigenous Australians, there, there can be very little doubt that Christians will be highly motivated to do whatever we can to help a people who have been oppressed and who are being oppressed, uh, that we should be seeking to help them, to, to lift their life, to lift their burdens, to make their life better in any way in which we can. I may add that Christians have been doing that since we arrived in 1788. The world hasn't been doing it. The, the squatters and the money makers of Australia haven't been doing it. But the history of Christianity, with its flaws and faults, 
has always been concerned for the Indigenous Australians. And so we, we do need to just, just put a little corrective in the debate in that regard. But just as The other f- corrective I'd put on what you've just said is that as Christians, we'll interrogate what you mean by oppressed. So, yes. Because right. we have a different understanding of personal responsibility, of communal life, of sin as, as something that is endemic to every community, we'll, we'll have a different perspective on the problems and disadvantages of the Indigenous community as we will on the problems and disadvantages of, of other communities. And so yes. that will also shape the way we think about that issue. Yeah, that's good qualification. I like that and agree with that. And so we will, we will be well motivated to do whatever we can to be helpful. But then we have to ask the question, will mechanically this constitutional change affect what we desire? And at that point, we have no word from God and we have disagreement with each other uh, about the wisdom or folly of this kind of constitutional change. Some would say, yes, it will work for these reasons. Others will say, no, it won't work for those reasons. And we must listen to the argument. But you see, at this point, what we're debating is the effectiveness of this particular change rather than the morality of wanting change, which is heavily influenced by our Christian understanding. But also at that point then, Institutional Christianity should keep its mouth shut. <laughs> because just as I complain about universities or I can complain about businesses speaking on areas beyond their competence or football players speaking beyond their area of competence, the church is not an institution which can really debate with any authority, any more authority than a football player, whether this particular change will affect the consequences that we want. That kind of consequentialism, it's a a rational debate and discussion whose outcome we can't even test because you can't just pass the law for half the country and leave the other half the other way to see which one works best. We're just making a judgment call. And that judgment call is beyond anything that I think the scripture reveals. And therefore, institutionally, we'll find some Christians will vote yes, some Christians will vote no. And I think both of them can be acting Christianly because the Christian part of their vote is their concern for the outcome for Aborigines. Um, But when churches enter into it, I have another problem. <laughs> that is, we are a bit naive. We're used by politicians. I noticed in the newspaper just the other day that the politicians are now going out because they think the, the big undecided vote that is still around and available is to be found in churches. And so suddenly Christian, well, not just Christian, but the Hindu temples and other places, well, the religious group, have suddenly become the flavour of the month with politicians. Do not trust them because they're just using us. We've got to make our own decisions from the information we have available and treat each other with Christian liberty in the choices we make so that we can 
debate honestly amongst ourselves what we think is the more likely outcome. And the other thing, of course, we have to do is commit our nation and our leaders, as, as Scripture encourages us to, to, to prayer to God. Oops, uh, I left that out. Absolutely. That's what we should do first, shouldn't we? Well, why don't we do that to finish, I was <laughs> just going to say. So we, um, we, we must acknowledge that God is the God of the nations, and, and we're encouraged to pray for our leaders and for those in authority that they would make God the unwise decisions, and that's another important thing for us to do, and a good way perhaps for us to round off this conversation. And we'll do that in, in just a moment. But dear listeners, thank you for being here once again with us as we've grappled with this question, and I hope our conversation's been helpful in sort of untangling for you some of the strange things that we see happening in our culture and some of the strange arguments that come out that really focus more on the vibe and try to try to win us emotionally to a particular position rather than thinking things through more more carefully and rationally and i hope it helps you too in your interactions with other people around you to point people to the god who bakes morality into our world as it were and who teaches us how to live in this world but only if we return to relationship with him so let's pray let's pray that god will be with us as we do this uh, and as we think this through together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of the nations, that you rule all peoples, and that you give us governments and kings and those in authority, and we pray we would be subject to those in trusting you. And we pray, Father, that as we interact as citizens in our society, especially in big questions like the ones that is currently before the citizens of Australia, that you give us wisdom and godliness in the way we consider our own decisions, we pray you'd protect us from being taken in by the lies of the world and by the arguments and positions that seek to persuade us. And that instead, Father, trusting in you and dwelling on what your word does say, that we would think wisely and prudently about what path might be best. Pray that as we interact with our neighbours and friends and in our communities, that we would represent this kind of godly good thinking. And we ask you to be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.